So let's begin our exploration, continued exploration of Romans chapter 12. Uh, if you are not in this class right now and listening to it later, I highly recommend you download the handout that I just gave to everyone because it will direct the conversation here and show you a bit of the framework that uh, I put together as a, a means to help us all learn this together. Now, the danger, I keep bringing this up, I repeat myself over and over again, the danger of doing sections of scripture is removing them from its context. Romans 9 through 21, you just look at this, which you have in front of you. It's a recitation of how to behave. Um, it could almost come from any source, but it's connected to what came prior to it. <clears throat> if you think of Romans 12 itself, it starts with the idea of presenting yourself as a living sacrifice, uh, don't be conformed to the world, renew your mind and be transformed. And then he talks about the idea that we are one body and that we all have gifts. And then he goes into this section on behavior or ways to live the Christian life. There is a technical term for this. <coughs> In rhetorical literature, this is called a pair uh, Paranesis is a collection, or as I put it here, where you string together various moral exhortations that have little apparent connection. So you could take each one of these separately and, you know, macrame it, uh, put it on a pillow, um, you know, they, they, they fit in refrigerator magnets. Um, each one is a separate entity in and of itself. They're loosely connected. Um, but what I try to do, as you'll see in the little text boxes on the left, the right-hand side of your handout, I try to say, here is a theme or a concept that I'm wondering if this is where Paul is directing his people in this church because he's talked about again you know take care of yourself and get your mind right and then we're all one body and we're working together as a body of Christ and then he starts with this idea of one another which flows through this passage and so I you know, created a theme on the side that you could see very quickly. In less than 80 words, Paul pretty much lays it out. If you can follow and you do everything that's here, and if everybody else did it, we'd all get along. It's kind of extraordinary when you look at it. There are 24 exhortations in this passage. 
And I once taught this, I actually found my notes, um, where I titled my, uh, my class, The 12 Commandments of the Christian Life. And I used 12 of them. And I pretty much grouped uh, verses 17 to 21 as not in the list. So I had this, that was one way of looking at it, but I didn't want to repeat that class. And I thought, you know, that, that's kind of cheating. Uh, let's, let's come at this afresh. And also I taught it 30 years ago, so it's not like I remember what I said, uh, but I had my notes. And here's another temptation. I could spend the next 12 weeks teaching these individually. And each class would be full. We would have a full hour of exploring what this means practically. And uh, I wrote here, I said, if you have a small group Bible study and you're desperate and not sure what to study next, do that. Take each one of these and as a small group, discuss them saying, what does this mean practically in our lives today? But instead, what I'm going to do here is that I want to start with the biblical text, which I typically do, take a look at some of the Greek language that's behind it, and try my best to roll through this material in a fairly rapid um, uh, direction. Because if I, if I stop too long, we'll be here for five hours. <clears throat> so... As, a, as, a, as the nature of teaching something like this, uh, we're going to be touching on them. We're not going to dive into the deep end of the pool, but we're, at least we're in the pool. And you know there's a deep end. If you want to go scuba diving, it's there. So we start with the first phrase, which kind of generates the theme for this whole passage. Let love be genuine. Now... <clears throat> I'm going to stop here. I'm going to dive a little deep here because this is interesting. What do you think the Greek word for love is here? It's not phileo. It's not brotherly love, which he has used already in this chapter. This is agape. This is that self-sacrificing um, I don't know, highest form of love possible. And he's beginning this entire recitation with that concept of agape here. Let love, let agape. So, where else does Paul write about agape? At length. 1 Corinthians 13. Isn't it interesting? If you go look at 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, he got, in chapter 12, he's on the top various topics of the spiritual gifts. Then he has this parentheses. Isn't that what he's just done here? 1 Corinthians 12 is kind of like Romans 12, 1 through 8. Kind of. I mean, it's, it's an echo. And then there's this stepping aside and 
focusing, now in Corinthians, he's focusing only on love and all of its beautiful form. And yet this segment is actually very beautiful in and of itself, if you think about it. But then he, uh, let's just say, adds a secondary meaning to this love by calling it, at least in the ESV, it's called genuine. Now, there may be other translations in the room. Uh, what do other translations say? Does anybody else have, does not have a ESV? Mine says, let love be without hypocrisy. Not without hypocrisy. What translation do you have? I have the meaning <laughs> Double check. <laughs> Oh, the CSP. Okay, very good. That's interesting. And I'll tell you why in a second. Um, the NIV says, let love be sincere. So we have the CSB, the Christian Standard Bible, has let love be without hypocrisy. The ESV, as we have, is let love be genuine. And the NIV is let love be sincere. The Greek word here is ahypokritos, without hypocrisy. So in other words, the translation you have is literal. In the Greek culture, actors who performed on stage were named and were called hypocrites. That was their title because they wore masks. They would put on the mask and then they would perform in whatever, you know, uh, character that that mask would represent, which allowed an actor to have multiple parts. Depending on which mask they would put on, then they would, you would know who was who. It's a little harder to do in today's film unless you use prosthetics uh, to change uh, that person. So, without hypocrisy, does mean genuine. The ESV is a, it's a good word. And the NIV is a good word, meaning sincere. Now, one little side note is that the word sincere comes from the Latin word sinceris, which literally means without wax. And you go, yeah, I don't want earwax either. I mean, what's the point? I don't get it. Well, back in the ancient merchants, those who would sell porcelain in the street vendors or whatever, if it was cracked, they would use the same color wax to fill in the cracks and then call it perfect. And so a smart buyer would take that cup and come out from under the tent that it was being sold in and hold it up to the sun. Oh, and let it melt. And if it began to melt or soften, they would go, this isn't, this isn't perfect, this isn't real. I want something that's sincere, without wax. So this is that, um, these underlying things here, so he's making a, actually a very beautiful statement 
Let your agape be without hypocrisy, without mask. Be absolutely genuine and sincere in what you are doing. As I wrote here, agape is not motivated by appearance, attraction, or sentiment. It's not this outward affection. It is an internal expression. Second half of the verse is, abhor what is evil and hold fast to what is good. It's interesting that the word abhor that is here is only used here in the entire New Testament. It is as strong of a word as you can use to describe hate. It is very intense in its usage. And it's only here in its extremely um, uh, rich in how do I say it it's almost to the point of revulsion my guess is there's been times in your life where you have come upon something that you have a physical uh, either a smell or a texture you put your hand in something whoa what is that um, ew well, to make it even stronger, think about it in the concept of evil. And what's fascinating to me is the word evil is used four times in today's passage. When he's talking about ethics, you would think, you know, he only need to say it once. But he really focuses on that abhorrence and the, the dangers of evil. I even wrote here, there are many in today's society that do not hate evil, but they hate the consequences of getting caught. They don't mind doing the criminal act. They don't mind doing the evil deed. They're, you know, evil. <laughs> but what they don't like is getting caught at it and then having to pay some sort of consequence. And unfortunately, there are certain factions within our current culture that seems to lessen the consequence of evil. And it doesn't make any sense. We, we're looking at it going, how can you let that person just go free on a technicality that you made up? It doesn't make sense. Well, we as believers, as those who believe in God's divine plan and God's divine um, providence we need to stay true to abhor what is evil so here's one other thought for you we have an internal gut check when it comes to evil it's when we are shocked by it and then you go whoa that's just that's horrific but isn't it becoming the case that Satan is, a, is assaulting us with so much evil, we have become immune yes. to it. Yes. And we are no longer shocked or appalled. That's really dangerous. And I say to each one of us, and I'm including myself in this, when something happens, we kind of go, oh, you know, there's another one of those, you know, Click out of it, click into something else. 
rather than going, Lord, this is wrong. It says to hold fast to what is good. That particular Greek word for hold fast is kalao, K-O-L-L-A-O, kalao, which can mean glue. It can also mean cleave. That word is used in describing marriage, where two become one, the cleaving and the union. That's the word that is being used here. I think it's uh, Jesus used it in Matthew 19.5 when he actually quoted Genesis chapter 2 about the union and the, uh, the cleaving or the holding fast or the clinging together. Well, this is related to what is good. Charles Spurgeon has an interesting quote. He said, I will set no wicked thing before mine eyes. He's actually referring to Psalm 101. He said, I will neither delight in it, aim at it, or endure it. If I have wickedness brought before me my others, I will turn away from it, and I will not gaze upon it with pleasure. The psalmist in Psalm 101 is sweeping in his resolve. He declines the least the most reputable and the most customary forms of evil. No wicked thing. Not only shall it not dwell in his heart, but not even before his eyes. For what fascinates the eyes is very apt to gain admission into the heart. Then in verse 10. Very straightforward to love one another with brotherly affection. There comes your Philadelphia word, the brotherly love. But technically, this isn't the word phileo, it's a, it's philestorge, which is family affection, family love, not just brotherly, but family. So Paul is intentionally using a word here that talks to the church, to the body of believers. Paul, you were just praying about this idea of having a unity and a unification in our body. And that is this loving one another. It's right here. It's very clear. And we know this intimately, each one of us, that there is a bond in a family that is very hard to explain to someone who's not in the family. And we can use it spiritually at the church, but you, you can step away from the church and just think about your own family. Even if your family is broken and bruised and battered, there's still connection. Yeah, did I just describe everybody's family? <laughs> but it's hard to explain. Yeah, that guy's really screwed up, my brother, but he's my brother. I'll do anything for him. Really? If he wasn't my brother, I'd kick him in the pants. But he's my brother, so I'll just speak sternly to him. Uh, no, I'm being facetious. But you take that brokenness of the human family, 
putting that brokenness into the family of God. And then if these behaviors that are being laid out are practiced, the brokenness does not exist anymore. Because it's no longer about you. It's about the person next to you and for the others. And that is that bond that is created. And that's where I have my, my box inside to love one another. It's kind of pulled out of this. And then the other half of the verse is to outdo another in showing honor. I didn't know that was a competition. <laughs> and you know what? If there's anything to be competitive about, is to be competitive about this. Because everybody wins if you are showing honor. Well, I've got to stop here. I'm going to ask you, not rhetorically, I want to hear your definition. What is the definition of honor? If we're supposed to be showing it, we better know what it is. So what is honor? And what is he talking about? Any thoughts? Any ideas? The best expectations. To what? The best expectations. Best expectations, okay. That may not be honor in the bigger sense. It's part of it. What would be another uh, synonym? Respect. Respect? Yeah. Think about that. When you respect one another, that means you are honoring them, you're honoring their opinion, you're willing to listen, you're willing to admit that they're completely wrong, <laughs> but you're willing to listen to their wrongness. Rather than this argumentation going, you're an idiot, you need to change your mind, you know, go away, get, get out of my face, it's a, well, that's an interesting perspective. So let's have a conversation about this and we can agree to disagree because we respect each other's opinions and we respect each other. Does that make sense? And I see that also as holding somebody up. I mean, yeah. over ourselves. In other words, they're, it's not about you, it's about them. You are honoring them. This is also, we have to remember, this is an honor-shame society. So the idea, if you do something that shames the family, that's horrible. You would never do that. Um, you can think of some cultures, especially, and they still exist in our, in our world today, where the concept of shame is overwhelming in how they act. We've pretty much tried to scrub that out of the United States and the American culture which I think might not necessarily be a good thing because there's that idea of honor and shame in what doing what is wrong that has an impact on those that are around you. Roman soldiers were in their when they took office would they would they pledge their allegiance they swore to never give preference in honor to anyone above Caesar, even their generals. They would take the orders, but they would not 
honor anyone higher than Caesar. We look at Caesar or the ruling authorities as placed there by God, but God is above them. And if they're going to go against God, then we don't give them honor anymore. That's chapter 13, by the way. <laughs> um, we'll, we'll be dealing with that next week. Um, Philippians 2.3, in humility, count others more significant than yourself, which is exactly what you just said. In Ephesians 5.21, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. This idea of honoring or respect. So, I was trying to think of an example, and this is more of a silly one, and I've told it to you before, and I'll do it very quickly, but if any of you have ever lost a bag at the airport, it's such a lovely experience. Um, so you go over to the room where they have the line, and it's usually fairly long because one plane load, they lost everybody's like baggage or put them in the wrong place. I mean, even Grand Canyon University's basketball team last week, their bags on a chartered flight didn't make it. So they didn't have their tennis shoes or their basketballs or anything for their practice the next day. I mean, that's just, it's a chartered flight. It's not like there's a lot of choices out there in the tarmac. And they, they just left, the guy just left them behind. Anyway, so imagine, so I'm in this line. <laughs> what? He was a Gonzaga fan. He was a Gonzaga fan, exactly. <laughs> so I'm in this line and, you know, we're all waiting for our turn to go up and describe our lost bag. And the man at the front of the line lost it. And I mean, so over the top angry, he screamed shouting at the, the poor lady behind the counter. And that lady just very stoically was sitting there. And he's just gesticulating and spitting and sweating and he's going, oh, no, 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 no. All of us are kind of going, whoa, this guy's really lost it. And she just very calmly looked at him and said, sir, what? Currently, there are only two people in this entire world who care where your bags are. And one of them is fast losing interest. And she smiled. And he just went, huh, huh. Oh, right, okay. And he calmed way down and she goes, so let me, let's start again. And then she just went through the whole thing. I mean, no blood pressure explosion in her life. And I got up to her and went, that was brilliant. She goes, I have been using it for years. <laughs> and it works every time. <laughs> wow. But if you think about it, she respected him. She didn't respond to his evil. That's another part of our passage here. But she reads, I understand, you're really upset. Yeah, I, and rightfully so. You have every right to be angry. But don't yell at me, I didn't lose it. And so you see that, I mean, that's a kind of a silly example, but how appropriate can that be in, even in our interaction with each other? Someone, something happens and someone gets really angry 
Okay. They have every right to be angry. But you don't respond with that anger. You simply go, well, okay. Let's see if we can figure this out. And this is where coming the honoring one another. So isn't it interesting that the very next pass, the next verse is to not be slow, and that's the Greek word. Yes, ESV says slothful, but it is the Greek word for slow. And in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of Hebrew, 11 times in Proverbs, this word is used and translated as sluggard. A someone who's just not putting enough effort into it. And so he's saying, don't be slothful in zeal, but be fervent, which has an implication of, of water boiling in a pot. Have you ever, I, I know, this is going to be true confessions here, but there are times where I'll just watch that pot boil because it's fascinating. I try to anticipate where the next bubble is going to come from, and I'm never right. I mean, you think about that circle, and there's bubbles coming, and you cannot predict it. It's just, and yet it's aggressive. And if you've overfilled the bowl to start with, it's splashing everywhere, and it becomes a big mess. That's fervent. To be fervent in the Spirit don't be slothful in your zeal. <laughs> I even wrote it here. You can burn out in your spiritual life. Just don't rust out. <laughs> I mean, there are times you get, and finally, it just, you, you just need to rest. Okay, that, there, there's an element to that. In Acts 18.25, it de describes Apollos as fervent in spirit. This exact same Greek construction of language. There was a man that was being described by the writer of Acts as being fervent in, the, in spirit and, serving the, and served the Lord. Well, goodness. I can tell you in my studies... Many, many, especially pastors, when they're doing their sermons on this, they took the three words, serve the Lord, and that's where their focus for the sermon was. Because they're trying to encourage the congregation to get involved. And I get that. Um, I didn't want to focus on that too much, other than to point out that if you're not serving, and if you're slothful, Revelation chapter 3 has something for you. In Revelation 3, verses 15, speaking to the church in Laodicea, God writes, I know your works. You're neither hot nor cold, and would that you were neither hot, cold or hot. You are either cold or hot, because you are lukewarm, and neither hot or cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. I really don't want to have the metaphor of God having me in his mouth going, yuck, what, I will not have that in me or a part of me. And that's kind of the point here. 
He's making a statement. Don't be slothful. Don't be lazy. Have your zeal. Be fervent in your, in your spirit. And then he swims right into verse 12. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. And I was looking at that going, again, we can pull out each one of these and do an entire lesson on it. What does it mean to rejoice in hope? Well, I look at the word rejoice and you think of the word praise as a synonym. I also look at the word prayer and to be constant in prayer. And I think, well, what are we doing in worship services? We are praying and we're rejoicing and we're praising. And yet we're among a body of broken and hurting people. As I wrote here, the church is full of hurting people, which is probably why they're there. If you think about folks who seem to have their act, they think they have their act together, they typically don't end up at church because they don't feel a need for God in their life. So when... The phrase here, be patient in tribulation, that has a personal meaning, but this is also an encouragement to someone in a body of believers that we support one another and are patient with each other in tribulation. When it is hard to rejoice in circumstances, we can be patient in anticipation of what God has for us. And stop asking why God, but instead ask what now. That's easier said than done. Okay, That's a nice uh, sentiment, Steve. I know that. Um, but it's true. If we are constantly saying, why God, why me? Why did you do this to me? It's almost an unanswerable question. Yes, sometimes you can look back in your life and go, oh, now, now I understand what was going on. But it's more of this, Lord, what do you have for me now in this circumstance? In patience in tribulation? Wow. Never forget when this was written. We're not even 10 years from when the emperor threw all the Jews out of Rome. All of them. They get out. You have a home? Too bad. You're, you just lost it. We're, we are throwing you out of the city. Which is why Priscilla and Aquila ended up in Philippi and ended up meeting Paul. They were from Rome. We're not that far from that. So imagine how disruptive that is. And now Paul's writing back to this congregation, which is now probably more Gentile, maybe even made up with a significant number of slaves who are living in a lack of freedom life. There's a Jewish remnant that has returned and he's telling them to be patient in tribulation. It's not a platitude. It is a genuine encouragement and exhortation. 
And that's where I say being in fellowship with one another is that when we're rejoicing in hope, constant in prayer, patient in tribulation, as a body, it lifts everyone up. Verse 13, contribute to the needs of the saints and show, seek to show hospitality. Well, that's fairly straightforward. I mean, there's almost no other way to read that passage. 1 John 3.17 reads, but if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against them, how does God's love abide in him? So when you see the need, contribute. It doesn't say solve the needs. It says contribute to the needs of the saints. And that's why I'm saying being giving and gracious to one another and seek to show hospitality. Well, there's all sorts, of, there's actually full books written on the gift of hospitality. Um, I can think of three of them off the top of my head right now that have been published in the last 10 years. The Greek word is philo, brotherly, xenian, X-E-N-I-A-N. Now, what is a xenos? X-E-N-O-S. Any idea? You've heard the phrase xenophobia? Stranger. So, love the stranger. Today, in our uh, culture language, People are being uh, accused to be xenophobes, which is a synonym for racist. But it's not a synonym. <laughs> it's a different word. But this idea of the hospitality is the love of strangers. That's the Greek word here. To take someone who is not necessarily part of the club and to bring them in and show them love and hospitality. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek for the needs of the stranger. That's how this verse could be translated. The saints would be your fellow believers. The strangers is the word hospitality. Even though you can't see it in the English, it's there in the Greek. And what, are they, what is the old song? They will know we are Christians by our love. So you can have someone who is different or odd or um, is not of the group. Think of Pastor Jim's example. She doesn't belong here. What's she doing here? Third grader. Wow, you can imagine the pain when you hear that sentiment stated so blatantly, it was probably not meant nefariously, but it was meant to say she's different, she doesn't fit in. Well, let's make her fit in, let's help her fit in. Let's help. Yeah. If I'm dealing with somebody very difficult, yeah. instead of going on about how, what the problems are, 
Verse 14. Interesting verse. Uh, verse 14 also can be connected to verses 17, 19, and 21. Because 17, 19, and 21 talk about revenge and, and the like. But verse 14, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse them. And I had to step back and go, okay, Steve, in your, you know, scholastic understanding of this, number one, is he talking about those who are persecuting you inside the body? Because isn't this written to the church and this is how the church acts towards one another? Or is this intended to say, yeah, this is the outside who are persecuting us, meaning the state and the government and you know those who, who hate Christians? And I want to say the answer is both. Because I think it has application both ways. There may be times, and there are those of us who may be more experienced in church disputes than others in this room, that you can come in to feel that others are persecuting you and are fighting against you within the body. And he's saying, don't curse them Bless them. Easier said than done. At the same time, those who are outside, who are persecuting or shouting at you or telling you that you, you need to you know, get a life or uh, stop, stop believing the mumbo-jumbo of the, uh, the Christian faith, <coughs> I mean, I, I actually saw it the other day uh, a very vicious non-Christian described Jesus as a, just this old, uh, old Arab walking around in a diaper. He was trying to completely undermine the veracity of who Jesus is by mocking. And I just went, whoa, that's offensive. And I actually got angry. Uh, wait. If he was in the room with me, I would probably be even angrier. <laughs> but how do you bless someone like that? Because they're waiting for it. They're doing it on purpose to get a rise out of you. And then you lose the temper and they went, told you. You say you're, you know, you're... You, you believe in other people and you love other people. You're certainly not loving me right now. Anyway. However, within the family of God, Hebrews 12:15 says, "Don't let a root of bitterness spring up and cause trouble, therefore, I'm sorry, thereby defiling many. you let it spring up, it ends up poisoning others. You might think you have your act together, but you're actually dropping poison in someone else's cup. And then they drink it. And then they poison their neighbor. And the next thing you know, things have gotten out of hand. And I wrote here, there are few who can hurt you emotionally 
as much as those who are closest to you. Family can hurt family in a way that is no, no other combination. Whereas a stranger is just passing through. They can walk in, say their thing, and you'll never talk to them and see them again. Fine. You know, heck with him. Dust my shoes of his memory. But if it's family, oh shoot, they showed up at Thanksgiving again. <laughs> Being facetious again. But I think Paul has got, again, he's trying to make a point. And then he counters it by saying, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. What a fascinating combination to be with people in both the highs and the lows. It's not a perfect example, and many of my examples aren't perfect, but many years ago, uh, I was in a very influential position in the uh, bookstore business, and I had a lot of friends in the industry because I was a purchase order. So I was a buyer, and people came out of the woodwork to shake my hand, and you know, I'd get letters and phone calls. I mean, it, you know, pretty heady time. And then I lost that job. And I found out who my friends were. And there were very few of them who still called. Because they called to talk to me, not to talk to my influence. And I've never forgotten that. You know, the person who picks up your bags and helps you go somewhere, they deserve honor and respect and attention. But in the family life, the highs and the lows, here's an interesting thing that came from an early church father by the name of Chrysostom, who was writing his commentary on this passage. This is what he wrote. It requires more of a high Christian temperament to rejoice with those who rejoice than to weep with those who weep. Uh, wait, what? For this nature itself fulfills perfectly and you are not so hard-hearted as to not weep with them that's in calamity but the other requires a very noble soul to keep from envying their success and to feel pleasure with the person who is in esteem. Wow. So, you know, there's an award ceremony and you're up for that award and so is another person and their name is called out and yours isn't. And you walk up to him, congratulations, good for you. And you turn around and <laughs> And having been a part of and watching many, many, many award ceremonies over the years, uh, particularly uh, book awards, and sitting next to someone who is a finalist and does not win, it's really hard to watch them take that ego blow at that moment but there are some who they rise up 
And you can just see God speaking to their spirit saying, you know what? Celebrate with the person who won. Because they earned it. Not that you didn't. Doesn't mean you're less of a person. It's just, yeah, it's, so what? It's competition. And it's an intramural game anyway. Doesn't change life. And your book sold more than theirs. Ha, ha, ha. No, sorry. Uh, but there's a, there's a challenge here of rejoicing with those who rejoice. And it's not so hard to weep with those who weep. Then he says in verse 16, to live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly and never be wise in your own sight. Okay, I'm going to dive a little deep here because of the Greek. So to live in harmony is a, and the word harmony is actually a, get the, Greek word written out correctly. P H R O N O U N T E S. Phrontes. Okay. This is a variation of the Greek word phroneo, which equals mind. Now, why is that important? Because it's used three times in this verse. A variation of the word phroneo. Live in phronuntes, or of same mind, with one another, and do not be Phronuntes, high-minded, and associate with the lowly, and never be phrominoi, never be wise in your own sight. So he's using this concept of the mind three times in this verse, telling us, exhorting us on how to think. To live in harmony with one another, that's a great word. I mean, goodness, we know what harmony is. But the underlying word means of a same mind, to live in one mind, in one voice for that matter. And I, again, just one more illustration. High school, choir. We had some day retreat where a whole bunch of high schools, schools came together for workshops, etc., etc. But the end of this event was for us to gather in the sanctuary. And this is, was a, um, an older uh, Catholic church with the tall ceilings and the stone walls and the, you know, the uh, stained glass on one end, stained glass on the other, pews and rows and rows and rows. And our, the high schoolers filled the room. There had to have been 800 of us. And I got to sit on the front row, just out of circumstances, just when they ushered us all in, our choir was brought in on the front row. In front of me is the director, and behind her is the orchestra, full orchestra. So I'm six feet 
from the violin chair. And we sang the hallelujah chorus in a stone room. Those of us who are musicians of any sort, the unity of all these voices, full-throated, I almost couldn't sing. It was so overwhelming from behind and in front and everything, the beauty and the harmony of such a glorious piece of music. I've never forgotten, obviously. I'm talking about it three years later. <laughs> As someone who just registered for Medicare, I'm not really liking this part of the world. Anyway. <clears throat> So the idea of living in harmony, that unity of mind, but then to not be high-minded in that unity, but associate with the lowly. And he just talked about showing hospitality to strangers. And then adds, don't be wise, the mind, again, in your own sight. In other words, we need to be getting along with each other and to be humble with one another. The combination, all in one verse, again, you could spend hours talking about this. Verse 17, 18, and 19 goes into this idea of revenge, I guess you could say. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought, which is a Variation of the word pronepo. It's actually the word pro-neo, to think before. So give thought to what is honorable. There's that word honor again, in the sight of all. And then verse 18, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. In other words, don't be the source of the conflict because it takes two to tango. As much as it depends on you, live peaceably. That middle phrase is so critical. You do your absolute best, but guess what? There's probably gonna be conflict all around you. Just the way it is, it's life. Just don't be the source of it. And if we trace the source back to your grumblings, you need to repent of that. As far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. And then he says, agape toy, titling, calling his people the beloved, with the word agape again, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. Oh, that is so hard. I mean... There are times when things go wrong and you just want to lash out and you want to take care of it yourself. But he says in verse 20, rather than taking a venge, venge, vengeance, feed your enemy. Oh, doggone it. You mean I have to have Lisa bake them cookies? Because I'm certainly not going to bake them cookies. <laughs> I mean, seriously. He's saying, don't avenge yourselves, feed them. Whoa. So one, one pastor used an example of a classroom setting where um, 
five girls had decided to pick on this one young girl and they would put pencil shavings in her sandwiches. And, you know, she takes the bite and it's just horrible and they all laugh, ha ha ha, and they're funny, bullying, basically bullying the young, the young child. And that child did not lash out, did not tattletale. She went home and with her mom baked cookies for those girls and drew on every one of them, Jesus loves you, and handed it to all of them. Mm. Now that is this, in practice. Huh. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink and make sure it's not poison. And he's quoting from Proverbs 25, he says, by doing so you'll heap burning coals in his head, and no one knows what that phrase means. There's all sorts of theories of what the heaping burning coals on someone's head. We don't know what it means. Otherwise, the bottom line is it must have been some colloquial phrase back in ancient, you know, ancient days that you're making them feel guilty when you heap burning coals. Because usually putting burning coals on someone is not is 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 vengeance. <laughs> You know, you're going to set their hair on fire. <laughs> uh, so I don't think that's what he meant here. Says, you know, feed them, eat them, set them on fire. That's what it says right here. And I don't think that's what he meant. Uh, <laughs> Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Wow. <laughs> So Charles Spurgeon has kind of a silly example. I have to read this one to you because it made me laugh. <clears throat> Quote, I once lived where my neighbor's garden was divided from me only by a very imperfect hedge. He kept a dog and his dog was a shockingly bad gardener <laughs> and did not improve my plants at all. So one evening while I walked alone, I saw this dog doing mischief, and being a long way off, I threw a stick at him, and with some earnest advice to tell him to go home. The dog, instead of going home, raced over, picked up my stick, and came to me, to me with it in its mouth, wagging his tail, <laughs> dropped the stick at my feet, and looked at me most kindly. <laughs> What could I do but pat and call him a good dog and regret that I had ever spoken roughly to him? Would that it be that humans responded more like dogs to harsh words? And I mean, yeah, it's a silly example, but we get the picture. Oh my goodness. So when we lash out with our words, are we returning evil for evil? Our words should return evil with good. Yeah, it also says to overcome, and it's it's so hard in our culture, especially with everything happening that's so vividly evil, to just think if you can eradicate that from the school library, from this, from that, it will be okay. But you have to, then it's just a vacated space. You have to overcome with good. You have to replace what's been removed. Yeah. First John four four. 
Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. First Peter. First Peter 3, 9 through 12. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you are called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil, his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and to do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. And that's a quote from Psalm 34. 1 Peter 2 verse 23 said, Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Doing good doing what is right, what is God-honoring, Christ-uplifting, self-abasing. And we do it for God's glory and for His kingdom. And this is how we are to behave with one another. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for our time together. We can only do so much justice to such a rich passage. Lord, we just thank you for the reminder I mean, how many times, as just even reading this passage, do I feel convicted and need to repent because I have not done as you are asking on a regular basis and with intentionality. Lord, let us be the light in a dark world. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.